0: This is Nick Redding, and you're listening to PreserveCast, a podcast with a worldwide listenership that explores the broad world of preservation from every angle, from drones to mudlarking and everything in between. Now, let's get preserving. Preserving history and telling and conveying important stories is really what this podcast is all about. We like to talk to people around the world doing amazing things with history, and that's precisely what this week's guest has done with the Jingle Dress Project part history part culture part art and part healing this is a powerful project that every american should know about and we're so pleased to bring on this week's preservecast This is Nick Redding, and you're listening to PreserveCast. Today, we're excited to be joined by Eugene Tapahi, who is a photographer coming to us from Provo, Utah. And we're going to be talking about a really fascinating project that he's been working on, um, the Jingle Dress Project, and what all that means, um, and telling this this really interesting and important story, both a historical story and a present-day story. But um, before we get there, we love to get to know our guests. So, um, Eugene, where'd you grow up? And, uh, I suppose what got you interested in history? Um, what's your, your career path been like and, and what got you to this point where we'll be talking about the the jingle dress?
1: I grew up on the uh, Navajo reservation as a young child. Most of my life there, I, I, I stayed there all the way through high school. I grew up with my grandma, um, in a traditional, um, in a traditional home, a Hogan and, and, um, I lived basically um, tradition my traditional ways, and my grandma taught me a lot of those things and ceremonial purposes and stuff. So it was a really great childhood I had. I um, lived in a home with her, and we had no running water and electricity at the time. So we, you know, it was really um, what we did is we we herded sheep. You know, sheep were, you know, were part of the family that's what um, our income and everything was about was the uh, it all focused around sheep and the wool and the lambs and you know the rams and all that stuff you know how how we were able to um afford things was by trade of being sheepers and so when i was young that's how i grew up i grew up in a in a very simple way of life Um, and at the time there was no internet and of course there's no electricity where we were at so we you know we we woke with the Sun and went to bed when the Sun went down and um, I just that's how I learned how to have um, the respect and um, to nature that I have right now and when I started going into grade school it was uh, it was always fascinating to me that we as um, native people have always been told that um, we didn't belong, even at an early age. And that, that's one of the things I think that fascinated me about wanting to learn about history. Um, as I started going into high school and then going into college, I started realizing that a lot of people didn't really know very much about Native people. Even in on, on the reservation, we have, you know, history classes. And even in the history books, we just barely skimmed over native people you know we didn't you know and and in the history books it wasn't even about we as navajos it was about the plains indians you know and how they lived in teepees and how they traveled by horse and and things like that and so it really it really fascinated me to feel like my gosh you know my, my story hasn't been told my people haven't been told you know um to to the world and so, as I, I grew up and went into, you know, my college life and my profession, um, one of the things that really struck me as um, a reason for um, my, I don't know, my, my, my craft and my the way I, I pursue things in my life is that I had an opportunity to work with ESPN, the magazine in New York City. And when I was there, I was really... Um, the really fortunate, I was the first native Navajo person to be working for ESPN the magazine. And that at that time, it was the first time I even went to the East Coast and ever visited New York. And so when I, when I left the reservation to go there, it was really scary and um, I didn't know what to expect, but I knew that the people I was gonna be working with were top caliber people in journalism. And so when I got there, I was really um, blown away by the expertise and the, the years that these um, the journalists and the, the people that had there. And as I stayed, you know, as I was there over the, a few weeks, the, you know, the staff got comfortable with me and I got comfortable with them. And we started talking personal things and, you know, just how we, we, you would in a working environment. And I was really set back at one, one day when one of the employees asked me, he asked me. He says, "So Eugene, do you still live in teepees? And at that point in time, it really, it really it struck me, like, in the sense of, it, it, you know, I could have done one or the other. I could have got, um, person, could have took it personally and, and got upset about it, and and got mad about it, or I could have educate him and let him know that you know where, where I come from and what my background is. And um, at that point in time in my life, I, I decided I was going to educate him. And it was, really, it was really an eye-opener for me because most of these people have been in journalism over 20 years. Most of them are educated. Most of them have their master's degrees. Most of them have been writing their whole lives. And as I started talking to him and letting him know that my people, the Navajo people, don't live in teepees, We traditionally lived in hogans, I said, but usually today, I said, we usually don't do, we don't live in hogans anymore. We usually use them for ceremonial purposes. I said, though, there are people on the reservation that still live in hogans. I said, but um, teepees are for the Plains Indians. I said, and I I told him, I said, there's over 700 different tribes in America right now. And out of all those tribes, I said, we all have different, backgrounds. We have all different beliefs and traditions. We have different um, uh, ceremonies. And I said, and so when people talk about Native Americans, we all aren't on the same page. We all have our own differences and our own ways of, of believing um, in, in, in what we, we do every day. And so I think that's the part that um, I realized is that those people on the East Coast probably were using the same history books I was using. And and so it got to the point where I thought to myself, you know, education and history has to be told by the people. And that became my objective. My, my objective and my, my life focus kind of changed at that moment where I was like, okay, so I'm not going to be a radical, angry Indian about, you know, um, protesting and doing all these things I figured you know I could be on the front line of being able to educate and still be able to make movement for my people to be able to help them to to be heard and so I decided at that point in time I was gonna you know use that knowledge I have to be able to educate others.
0: Yeah it's a really beautiful it's a you know, I I didn't know that story going into this conversation. It's a, a beautiful way of taking a really ill informed and almost, I mean, truly like an offensive question and kind of turning it around, and then seeing that there's you know potential and in, in obviously everybody needs to to know more about this and um, it's painful to hear that even on the, even on the Navajo Reservation that those that those textbooks at the time didn't really go into that history and maybe hopefully that that's changed. I don't, I don't know if that's the case or not, but, um, so you're obviously an accomplished professional, um, photographer. We have a link to your page in the show notes so people can go there and, and see your work, which is really just very beautiful. Um, and so you've used that craft, your skill and your craft in photography in telling some really interesting and important stories, Um, and one of which we're going to talk about here, and I sort of mentioned in the beginning, this this the jingle dress project. But before we talk about the specifics of that, that's a that's a project, and you know, I guess a good um segue here is you're talking about all these different tribes. Um, and this is a a project associated with the Ojibwe tribe. Uh, and I'm curious, just you know, for people listening, you know, we've got listeners all across the the globe. Um, it actually might be helpful to take a step back and say, Where is the Navajo Reservation that you grew up on? What state that's in? Where the Ojibwe are? Um, Just kind of give us a little bit of background of these different tribes, the the geography of them. Uh, And then we'll talk about the project itself.
1: Yeah, so um, the Navajo Nation, is, is that's what it's called now. Back in the day when I was younger, it was the Navajo Reservation. But now it's Navajo Nation. We actually have our own government system now. It's the same thing as the um, as um, the United States government. We have three branches, and so now we're the Navajo Nation. But our our um, our land goes into the four states in the Four Corners area: Arizona, Utah, New Mexico, and Colorado. So we're in the Four Corners area, and we're the largest tribe in in America right now. Um, the Jibway the Jibway people are are um, broken up into bands so they're not there's not just one Ojibwe band there's there's several of them and and they um right now they reside in in Minnesota area and Wisconsin and then up into Canada and there are some smaller bands um all the way into like Montana area too so there's roughly I would say population as far as the Ojibwe is about 170,000 and whereas for the Navajo people were we're above 600,000 people. And so, um, so you can kind of get a comparison of um, population. But um, as far as um, people, you know, the, the connection that I have with uh, the Ojibwe people and even just uh, um, the history of the jingle dress dances, it actually goes back into another tribe. It goes to the, uh, in 2016, uh, my daughter and I, we actually um, went out to Standing Rock uh, when they were having the the um, the fight with the pipeline, the No Dapple Pipeline, the, the Dakota Access Pipeline, that was going through um, the the Lakota um, Dakota people's homes or their their land right there in um, North um, Dakota. So um, we we went out there because um, I'm sure it was a worldly event. People knew about it, and so we went out there to. Um, as a photographer and my daughter is a journalist and also myself as being a journalist, my, um, you know, 20 plus years in my life, um, we went out there to try and um, document the the events that were happening out there. And we so happened when we went out there that um, we got there the day um, after one of the raids that happened uh, um, in the camps there. And as we were um, there, they actually organized a, a, a a healing um ceremonial jingle dress dance and and the dance was actually um held right on the highway right where the raid happened um and so they they danced right on on the highway in and in in the middle of winter it was amazing because the, the it was like minus 20 degrees there and and to have like 50 plus dancers um females there and and the crowd there and being able to be um, a witness of this. And, and it, was, um, it was a, a very um, spiritual moment for, um, for a lot of people there. They, the reason they, they wanted to um, have the dance was because they, um, after the raid, there were a lot of people, veterans and other people that served in the military that were getting flashbacks of when they were at war. And um, so they wanted to heal the people that were affected by um, the violence that happened. And not only were they doing it for the native people, but they were doing it for both sides. They were also doing it for the military. By the way, as we were, they, they were preparing to do the jingle dress dance, maybe about a hundred feet away, you had snipers and, and um, aerial um, artillery and um, SWAT team and military that were there Right on the freeway, or on the highway, watching all of this happen. And so it, it was more of a, um, a healing ceremonial dance that they were performing there. And this was the first time that I, I and my daughter witnessed this as it being in a real spiritual healing way. Um, we've we've um, experienced, I've experienced, and my, my daughter's actually a jingle dress dancer um, in more of a, a competition powwow kind of setting, um, you know, exhibition kind of um, settings. But this was like the very first time that we, we really experienced it in the healing way and how it was done and how it was performed and how the, the, the song and the music and then how they were um, dancing differently. All of it was all um, very um, old school and traditional ways of doing things. And so it was very exciting to be able to be a part of that. And so, and and this was the Lakota Dakota people, but at the same time, they had uh, um, Ojibwe people there too, um, counseling them on how to um, perform this dance. And so it was amazing to see all of that. And then also what was really amazing to me is that most of the time Native, um, in in Native people in in general, um, we won't be, we don't have, we don't want it to be recorded you know, we don't want it to be um, witnessed in that sense. So a lot of times in, in a ceremonial way, they'll turn tell the um, press or people to not record it or take photos during the ceremony. But the uh, spiritual leader there um, told us that we could, you know, told even non-Native people that were there, that were um, the press that were there, that they could record this. And the reason that they, they gave that permission was because they knew that the world was watching, that the world was also watching this raid and watching the violence. And so they wanted to make sure that the world also healed. So the
0: the dance itself and what's referred to as a jingle dress dance, how, how is that defined? Is it is it separate from other types of, like growing up in upstate New York, we got an opportunity to go see like the Iroquois people. Um, do some type of, you know, that they would, you get to go to see some dances and things like that. But how is this different from a, any other type of dance and maybe kind of give us, and, and you go into this on your website in a really cool way, but the, the story of how part of this comes out of the 1918 pandemic and sort of the connection of these pandemics.
1: Well, as, um, as I can see it, I'm not, you know, I'm not the expert and I'm not, I don't know the real details of everything. And not very many people do because Native people, our cultures are all oral. We, we didn't write things down. And so, you know, how specific this is, is, is only as specific as I know from a sure. historian that um, has consulted me. And we, her and I have worked together a lot. Her name is I'm Brenda Childs, and she's out of Minnesota. And she's Ojibwe and um, the story that um, she discovered in in her studies and in in her research that she's found is that the um, jingle dress dance originated back in 1917 and 18 during the first um, pandemic in the the United States. Um, A Ojibwe dad, his um, daughter was stricken with the, um, at the time, I think it was the influenza, the flu, the Spanish flu. And um, he was really worried about her because she was really sick. And so when he went to sleep, he actually had a dream. And in his dream, the um, the origin of the jingle dress dance came to him. So he, in his dream, he was told how to make the dress and how to um, dance in the dress, and how to um, and how it was supposed to be a healing dress. And so um, when he woke up the next morning, he had his wife, he he instructed his wife how to make this dress. And at the time, they made four dresses. And the four dresses were made in um, the four sacred colors of the Ojibwe. And so he ended up giving them to four um, young, young girls to dance the dance. And as they were dancing the dance that evening, the story goes that later the evening when they were dancing that the um, his daughter uh, got up and started dancing with the girls and as far as i know and i've, I've you know i've been around um, powwow and other ceremonial dances and things like that but as far as i know that the the jingle dress dance is the only dance that i know that was um that was that came from uh, a reasoning of healing um, the whole purpose of that dress was for the healing purposes, and, and so there's other dances that happen at powwows and stuff, and it's mostly it's different. It's more of um, a warrior's way or a celebration's way of um, expressing their um, their gratitude and things like that. And so the, this is the only dress that I know of that is a, a healing um, dance.
0: And so obviously the 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 healing dance itself um, and the the very specific dress and the and, and the colors and everything like that it, you know as as you mentioned seeing it happen at the um, Dakota Access Pipeline protests it's it's continued on it's a it's a healing activity that has continued on where did your your involvement in this sort of now so we've got your history growing up where you grew up your interest in telling these important stories and sort of bringing native culture and history to to different people and different audiences you've seen the jingle dress dance and now fast forward we're in the middle of a COVID pandemic and the idea of doing what comes to you and what is the project that you're working on?
1: Well, in, um, in March of last year, which is, it's almost March now is um, the pandemic just really just started. People were just talking about it at the time. And last year in Phoenix, um, Arizona, I was um, one of the artists at the Heard museum um, art show there and at the art show there we you know is a, it's a huge art show where there's hundreds of um artists that come and we're all juried into this into this art market so it's a pretty prestigious market and um at the time we you know we we just thought oh you know people are getting sick we didn't really think anything very much of it and and um i came home from phoenix that that weekend feeling really good because i did really well at the market you know I saw a lot, of, a lot of images and also got a ribbon for one of my works there. And, you know, I came home and I was, I was just telling, you know, driving home and telling my wife, hey, Sharon, you know, this is gonna be our year. You know, this is, it feels good. You know, the year's just starting and we have all these other markets that we're gonna be going to. There were actually other markets that I got into that I didn't get into years before, you know, and, and so we were excited about the year. And as we got home, they started talking about how, you know, they're gonna um isolate us, you know, and we're gonna social distancing and quarantining, you know. And in fact, when I got home, they were saying if you traveled outside of the Utah State, you should quarantine for 14 days before you go out and see anybody. So that's what I did. I, I quarantined when I got home from Phoenix and and then it just started snowballing from there. Um, you know, everything shut down, businesses shut down. And, and then in, um, in May, I'm sure everybody knows this in May, it was just chaotic. You know, everyone was just, everything was just going crazy. Everybody was isolating, Everybody social distancing, everybody was scared. People were dying, you know, thousands of people started dying. And one by one from March to May, all these art shows started canceling. And that, that's for a full time artist like I am, that was devastating because I kept thinking, what am I going to do to make money? What am I going to do to even just with my time, you know, and, and being able I, I'm a landscape photographer, so I'm thinking, how am I going to travel in this pandemic? You know, how is this going to happen? And then in May, um, my, um, my aunt, our last matriarch of our family, my, um, my mom's sister, Um, contact she was contracted with um COVID and at the time she was in a in a um in a home um and so it was really hard for us because we couldn't be with her remember this is early on so they didn't know anything really about it yet so all they knew is that you know we can't let anybody in and be with them and so she basically just passed away um with strangers around her. And um, she died. And um, we, we couldn't, in, a, in the Navajo traditional way, we, we, we bury and celebrate our, our um, relatives passing away. And we do it within four days. We, we, we bury our, 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 our people within four days. And it took us like a couple of weeks to even try to figure out how is it that they were gonna let us, you know, put her to rest. And because of the, the the restrictions and the way they were trying to figure out how to bury the people who actually passed away, they didn't have anything figured out yet. So we found out the restrictions were that there were only be able could only be six people at the grave at the burial site. And for Navajo people, that's nothing. You know, we when someone passes away, we have over fifteen hundred people. You know, coming to funerals, and and saying their goodbyes and and celebrating the life. You know. And so it was really hard for us, and so even just um, trying to get six of us to put the casket down into the ground was was really hard for us and and the time we were doing it, it was raining like crazy and stuff too, and it was really cold and so um, after that experience, um, I came home, and it just was devastating. I just was so angry and upset about everything that was happening and um, a few days later, I, I went to sleep and I had a dream, and in my dream, I was sitting in Yellowstone National Park, in a, and that's a place where I love to go, and I, I do a lot of photography there. And even before I started really doing landscape photography, my family and I—that was kind of our retreat. We would go there and have, you know, family vacations, and it was always a place of sanctuary and peace for us. And so, I found myself in my dream. I was sitting in a in a green field of um, grass and the sun was setting and I was just sitting there and the bison were just kind of roaming and grazing in the, you know, on the, on the grass in the sunset. And then all of a sudden I started hearing um, jingles from the dresses and all of a sudden out of the, you know, left and right side of me, all these women started coming and dancing on the field and it seemed like they were dancing with the bison and, and it was just so beautiful. And I just felt like, this peace and calm and this hope came over me, and I really felt like I was being healed by this dream. And um, it was so vivid for me that the next morning, I told my wife and my daughters about it, and I asked them, I said, "Wouldn't it? Wouldn't it just be wonderful if I could try and get this to become reality?" Wouldn't it be wonderful to do this for the people of, you know, of, um, during this COVID time, you know, during this pandemic. And so we started talking about and trying to figure out how we can do it. And so I ended up, um, talking to them and then my daughters, I told my daughters, you know, um, let's, if we can get two more girls to, um, dance, you know, the dance and we can go and we can go to the land and, and do all these, you know, and, and dance the jingle dress dance and be able to bless the land and the people. Um, I said, it wouldn't be wonderful to be able to document this time. And so that's what we decided. We, they talked to two of their um, friends and, and we, we, we started this project with them, the six of us and we just kind of, you know, I'm not a portrait photographer. They're not professional models. And we just kind of, our first photo shoot, we just kind of stumbled on how we were going to do this. And, and, and we went out to the Bonneville Salt Flats, the native land of um, the Utes and Paiutes, and, you know, and um, we started our photo shoot. And when they made, when they performed that first Jingle Dress Dance out there on the Salt Flats, it was so spiritual it really felt like we weren't alone it really felt like our ancestors were there dancing with us it was such a spiritual moment that after the dance um some of us were in tears and we were just like you know no matter what happens this this project needs to be done it needs to you know it needs to happen and at the time that's when um of course covid was happening and so for my family and i we decided that we couldn't um we couldn't ask people for money. You know, we couldn't let people know what we were doing because it was, you know, it was a pandemic and we didn't want people to feel like it was safe to travel. And so from the very beginning, we, we kept it quiet. And we, but we, we, we wanted people to know that we were actually trying to heal the land and we were actually doing the jingle dress dance. So a lot of places we went, um, we took our own food we isolated ourselves we didn't go into the cities we cooked our own food and we 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 camped when we could and when we did go to hotels we we sanitized and you know we sprayed everything down and and um we wore masks all the time um even at the gas stations i would wear um surgical gloves and i'd be masked up and then my daughter would spray me down with lysol before i got in the car and so it was It was really um, scary at the time, but at the same time, we had the spiritual feeling that we needed to get it done. We needed to do it. And so um, that's kind of how it started.
0: Well, this might be a place to take a quick break and then come back and talk about where this all went and where people can find it. Um, And we'll do that right here on PreserveCast. We want to thank Oliver Pluff Company for sponsoring today's episode of PreserveCast. Oliver Pluff Company tells the story of historic American beverages, including teas, spice drinks, cacao, and coffee for historic sites, national parks, gourmet markets, and consumers looking for a great beverage hand-packaged in signature artisan tins to enjoy a cup of history and learn more about what Oliver Pluff Company offers please visit oliverpluff.com. That's Oliver Pluff, spelled P-L-U-F-F, dot com. PreserveCast would like to thank the University of Colorado College of Architecture and Planning for sponsorship of today's episode, a university where you can earn a master's degree in historic preservation that focuses on environmental sustainability, placemaking with historic buildings, and preserving large-scale landscapes. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to Preserve Cast today. Again, we're joined by uh, photographer Eugene Tapahi, um, and we've been talking um, all about um, his, his work, um, his craft, telling these important stories, um, and then also the origins historically of the jingle dress dance, and then sort of this resurrection of it um, as another healing opportunity um, during. The height of the COVID pandemic. Um, so I think it's funny that you say, by the way, that you know, you're know you not a professional portrait photographer and they're not professional models because anybody who goes to this website and looks at it would <laughs> I think would be surprised by that because it's, it's beautiful. It's just stunning stuff. So uh, you obviously are, are too humble when it comes to that. Um, but um, where does it go from here? So there's just, just a lot of interest generated in it and people pick it up and are interested in it and what is it, what does it become and, and where, where is it headed now?
1: So, you know, the, I think the biggest thing for us on this project, which has been um, wonderful is that um, as, as we were doing the project, like I said, we were trying to keep it um, to ourselves, but as it evolved, um, we, we started getting people who were wanting to support the project, who were wanting to um, be a part of it. And in in a Native way, um, a lot of times people were asking us where they could help us by donating. And at the beginning, we didn't want to take any donations because we didn't want to set anybody back because, you know, a lot of people were hurting during the pandemic. But um, as as we started going, my wife and I, we discussed it and we realized that um, we were denying people's um, blessings. In, in a native way we in, in any ceremony or anything, in any events that we have, we always um, bring an offering or, or bring um, something either it's food or money or something to be able to to help with the the event and our help with the ceremony so that them um, they in, in, in return will get um, will get blessings from it too and so in, in that sense, we really um, we really w- wanted that to happen um, But at the same time, it was it was difficult a difficult decision for us. So we did. We started taking donations. We started taking um, money from people, and it was it was very um, humbling in a sense because, along with those um, donations, they were sending um, um, notes and messages to us, and a lot of them were you know they were donating like three dollars or five dollars, and a lot of them were were kids saying you know my mom has COVID. please dance for her. Um, I, I got a message from a, a, another girl who said, you know, my, my, my sister passed away from COVID and she wanted me to give you $5 before she left. Um, and so we it, it started really realizing how important and um, this, this, this project became. We started getting messages of hope and we got messages from Native um, girls who were saying that they wanted to become jingle dress dancers. We got some from moms who said that they didn't finish their, their um, girls' um, regalia jingle dress yet. And so that this motivates them to be able to want to finish it for them. And so, you know, when we, we had even young girls who used to jingle dress dance, who said that they were going to stop drinking and doing... Um, drugs and stuff so that they can return back to the good path of being able to, to jingle dress dance again so all of this is going on and, and as we were doing the project so we finally um we had a, a revealing of all our images in october at a gallery show in, in here in utah and we revealed all the locations we went to and after we did that reveal it was just amazing how many people reached out to us and wanting us to come To their reservations, to their lands, to come and dance and to heal the people there, and so that's kind of where we're at right now. We, we actually um, this past um, winter break for the girls because they're they're in school and college and 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 working and things like that. Um, During the break, we actually went and traveled out to the East Coast, and we ended up um, dancing out there in New York. We actually on New Year's Eve we actually danced in Central Park. Um, in New York, and it was just such a spiritual um, presence there that we we ended up dancing, you know, three dances there, um, and so we and we went into D.C. and and we actually on our project we got um, invited out to um, Minnesota to the Lacs Reservation, the, the band of um, um Ojibwe, and that's where the dress actually originated from. That's where they danced the first dance. And the the people invited us out there and we danced out there where you know the first dance was was danced. And you know, so for us we're we're just kind of open on what we're trying to do and and we're um trying to do and go to places where we've been invited and we're trying to do it within a, a you know within a reasonable time and being safe at the same time. And there's a lot of places that we've been invited to that. We would love to go to all of them, but, you know, it takes funding and time. And and so, you know, we're, that's kind of where we're at right now. We're, and the biggest thing for me is just being able to spread the word of um, of of just being able to heal people, give people hope, and to make people realize that um, not, uh, not only are we trying to do that, but we're also trying to do a reclamation of land, the Native lands that we're um, visiting and going to, to let people know that, you know, as Native Americans, we're still here. And there's a lot of um, issues that Native Americans are going through right now. And we're even bringing awareness to the um, Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women, the MMIW. Through a lot of our images, we have, we have our red scarves and our, our, our red masks that we, um, we, we dance in honor of them also. And we try to um, bring uh, awareness to a lot of things that are happening right now to Native people.
0: It's just such a powerful project and just, you know, imbued with history, but also the sense of healing. Um, Obviously, it comes across that you're proud of it, and you should be, because it's just... I feel like it's a really uplifting thing and, and we wanted to be a part of being able to help spread that message too and let people know about it. If people want to find out more about it, obviously there's a link, but um, where can they go? Uh, and we'll put the link in the show notes for this episode so people can click on it right there. But um, where can they go to find out more about you, more about this project? If they want to make a donation or there's a funder listening to this and they want to help with some of that, um, where's the best place for everybody to go?
1: Um, we, we actually have a, a web page up um it's, it's, um, it's my name, tapahi.com slash jingledressproject.html. Um, also, I'm on Instagram. I mean, Instagram is probably where you can get really great detail of a lot of the things we're doing. Um, I'm at, my Instagram is just my last name, tapahi, um, I just did a Google search this this morning, and I just pushed in Jingle Dress Project. And boom, it came up, and and um, so we're easy to find. We're we're um, we're excited that it is easy for you to find us, and we are um, a grassroots project. It's just my family; um, we're the only ones funding this, and we we have um, re- we had requests from other people to do like um, oh our scarves. That's how it started at first. We were holding our scarves and our in our photos, and, and then we got requests from people, where can we get those scarves, you know? Who made those scarves, you know? And I, I'm the um, one that actually designed the scarf and the, the logo on it and everything. And so we ended up putting the scarves for sale and then we got requests from other people saying how about t-shirts you know and so so we've got some t-shirts i designed some t-shirts and stuff and so so those are the things right now the t-shirts we have pins and we have um some other merchandise that we're going to be announcing on on monday um we we got some really great collectible stickers that we're going to announce on monday that are going to be for sale too and all the proceeds and everything that we get um we just put put away and you know we we save it for our travels. We save it for, you know, making more T-shirts, and you know, it just kind of just is just sitting there, and it's just revolving in the sense of being able to give back to the people and, and, and the project, and so so. There's always a way of getting a hold of me. My my website is tapahi.com. Um, if you if there are donors out there, or if there are anybody who wants to sponsor um, part of our, our travels and stuff. I mean, you can always contact me. My, my email is really simple too. It's tapahi at tapahi.com. So, you know, there's all kinds of ways of getting in touch with us. And the girls, like I said, are, um, future lawyers, um, future doctor. Um, we have actually my youngest daughter who wants to go into environmental law. My oldest wants to go into, um, human rights. Um, Sunny wants to go into, um, Human rights also, and then Joannie wants to become a doctor, and so those are kind of their goals of what they want to do. And they're all in college right now. My oldest is actually applying to schools for um, law school and also grad school. So they're, you know, they're very great examples of what um, you can do as long as you have the drive and um, the desire to be able to succeed.
0: Well, that, that drive and desire, um, I, I imagine they got a little bit of that from you. It, c- it comes across that you have that. So I imagine you must be pretty proud um, of that, of this project, everything that you're doing. Um, so we encourage people, go on, make a donation. The scarves are really cool. Um, the T-shirts are really neat. Um, and it's a great way to give back to a project that is doing some really amazing cultural preservation work when it comes right down to it. Um this is the most difficult question. We normally ask this of people just to kind of make them squirm a little bit, your favorite historic place or site. And I mean, you've been to so many and there's so many places that matter to you, obviously it comes across, but do you have one that you'd pick out and say, yeah, that's it?
1: Yeah. My, I'd have to go back to Monument Valley. You know, Monument Valley is like where I, I I feel like I started my career as a photographer, as a landscape photographer. Um, the reason I chose landscape photography, even though I was doing um, photojournalism for a long time, is because um, my grandma, my grandma, she lived to be 107 years old. And in the latter days of her, her, her life, she um, told me that she didn't, re- re- she didn't have a real reason of why she was still living, because she couldn't go out into land. Um, she couldn't be with her sheep. Um, she was so frail that she couldn't really leave the house and that she was stuck in a room and all she could do is look out the window. And um, when she said that to me, I, I, I just told her, I says, you know, I think family still needs you here. That's why you're still here. And it really um, impacted me when she talked about that to me, because at the time I was um, a designer designing websites and I was the same thing, I realized I'm doing the same thing she is. I was sitting in a little cubicle, looking out a window, sitting in front of a monitor all day, even though the mountains here in Utah are only like five minutes away. I, I never went up to look at them. I never you know, really traveled or hiked up there. And I realized that, that my life was, was going down that same path, even though I wasn't 106 like she was. And I, I realized that I needed to make some life changes. And so that's when I said, you know what, I think I'm going to do landscape photography because I want to take my images and I want to show my grandma where I was and what I did. And so I did. That's what I did. I, I, I went out and to Monument Valley is my first place I went. I, for the first time, I bought a digital camera. Everything before that was film. I took my digital camera I went out to Monument Valley. And was out there for weeks and just, just really trying to feel the camera and feel the spirit of the land and, and trying to figure out where my life was gonna go. And then I took those images and and put it on my i my iPad and went back and visited my grandma and showed her the images. And the really cool thing was is that when I started showing her, she said to me, She says, You know what, son? She says, I was there with you every single day. And it just made me feel so good because that's how I felt. I felt when I was back in Navajo land in Monument Valley, I felt like she was there with me. I felt like my relatives were there. I felt like I was walking amongst the ancestors that were once there before. And, and that's what I always have um, tried to do when I'm in my photography, is try to capture the spirit of the land and, and, and try to make it so that when someone looks at my image, it's not just like, oh, great picture. No, I want them to say, wow, I could feel what you felt in that photo. I could feel what you were looking at and seeing. And that's the part that um, I try to do with all of my images, and even with the Jingle Dress Project, is that I want to incorporate the land, the spirit of the land. And, and that's the thing you can see um, in my images with um, all, all I do is I try to incorporate the, the, the spirit of the land and then also um, use my heart and follow my heart to... To be able to um, capture what I do, and and that's what I I learned it. I learned it at Monument Valley. Um, I learned all of what my you know what I do on on native land. And so for me, historically, that place is going to survive no matter what happens.
0: That is a uh, that's a beautiful answer. It might be one of the one of the better answers we've gotten, and one of the better better explanations. Um, for why a place mattered and why 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 it's one of their favorites. Um, this has been just a wonderful opportunity, wonderful experience, and so thrilled to be able to have the opportunity to sit down with talk with you. Wish you the best of luck and hope to have you back in the future to talk more. Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's story, head over to PreserveCast.org for show notes and our collection of previous episodes. Don't forget to engage with this podcast by subscribing, commenting, and leaving a review. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at PreserveCast for even more. PreserveCast is currently recorded in Walkersville, Maryland, and sponsored by the 1772 Foundation and powered by Preservation
1: Maryland. Thanks for listening and keep on preserving.